In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Solemnity of the Epiphany is a beautiful occasion. We have hymns that are just for this day. And this day isn't even today, it's January 6th, the day after the 12 days of Christmas. But it's so important that the church transfers the day to this Sunday so that we all celebrate Epiphany. It's when we bring the, the three wise men and the camels to the nativity scene. They've been hiding you know, around the corner in the cupboard near the powdered milk or someplace. Now they're finally... Now they're finally part of the scene. The story is very familiar. So familiar, in fact, that there is a a dimension to it which goes largely unstated in the prayers of the church, or at least the prayers at Mass. But you may have noticed how many times King Herod was mentioned by name. In the gospel passage. And so even though evil and sinister things shouldn't be part of our conversation too frequently, it's it's worth immunizing ourselves against its influence by occasionally describing what's up. This gospel narrative continues in a way that you've heard before, but let me read it for you as it takes off from the 12th verse of the second chapter of Matthew. Now when they, the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt have I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, was in a furious rage, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, Wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be consoled because they were no more. But when Herod had died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. On this beautiful solemnity of Epiphany, the church encourages us to take a cue from the wise men. And the blessing which takes place on this day marks their initials for Casper, Melchior, Balthazar. The significance of it isn't that 
they have blessed your home somehow. The significance of it is that they have come to your home because Jesus lives there. Your home has been blessed and occupied by the Christ child. And that beautiful reality will soon be followed by evil visitors. People who do not wish you well. In fact, this feast of Epiphany is too exclusively associated with the visit of the wise men. The church, in fact, speaks of three epiphanies, three manifestations of our Lord to the world. The first is this occasion, the visit of the wise men. And the second, sometimes reflected in next Sunday's gospel and the Sunday after that, the second epiphany is our Lord's baptism in the River Jordan. Manifested with John the Baptist crying out, Behold, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist being prompted by the vision of the dove, by the image of the Holy Spirit. And the third epiphany is our Lord's first miracle at the wedding feast of Cana. That's the one that may or may not be in the gospel, depending on the year. Each three of these occasions were immediately followed by a terrible encounter with evil. The wise men were immediately followed by Herod's henchmen killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Our Lord's baptism in the Jordan immediately is followed by his going into the desert to do battle with the devil. Our Lord's first miracle at Cana, at the wedding feast, seems less clearly followed by evil, unless we remember the questions that the devil was asking Jesus in the desert. If you are the Son of God, we have to keep in mind the devil can see what we're doing, he can hear what we're saying, But he doesn't know what we're thinking. He doesn't know what we're feeling. As a result, our Lord's first miracle, his first manifestation of supernatural power, all of a sudden made him the target, even more so than he was before. And then the devil had his machinations. How many times was our Lord's life in jeopardy? And how many times did he have to escape death and hide for almost all of his public life so that he could do what he needed to do, preach, work miracles, heal the sick, raise the dead, until everything was ready and the apostles were prepared for the Paschal Mystery. So every epiphany, all three epiphanies, are followed by a terrible encounter with evil. At the same time, The church doesn't want us to worry too much about that. But for those of us who don't know the narrative and don't know the background, it has to be spelled out once in a while.
It's good then to remember our Lord's warning later on in the Gospel of Matthew, in the 12th chapter, where he speaks of the unclean spirit that left a man. This is verses 43 to 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a man, he passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and brings with them seven other spirits, more evil than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. Remember the letters that are going to be over your front door. Casper, Melchior, and Balthazar are visiting because Christ lives there. The Holy Spirit is active in and through every human being, especially the baptized. And those of us who, in confidence, having examined our, our conscience, know ourselves to be in the state of grace and receive Holy Communion, really are living temples of God, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And so Christ really does dwell in your homes. The little boy who for many weeks was crying himself to sleep at night because he was afraid that he wouldn't wake up and was afraid what would happen, was consoled by his mother who just stroked his hair and said, Jesus loves children. He will not let anything bad happen to you. Well, I learned as life went on that we need to make sure that Jesus lives in us. The house that swept clean and empty is an open invitation for infestation. But the house where Jesus dwells is a stronghold. As I occasionally advise people on the way out of confession, when, they, when I get the sense that they're a little too overconfident about, I feel great, I'm absolved, never going to happen again. If our confidence is based only on how good we feel, and in our confidence, in our conviction, we're sitting ducks. We're an open door inviting bad things to happen. But if we leave the confessional and we see Jesus and we can hold his hand and we can see his face and we can listen to him and we can spend the rest of the day with him, we can feel his hand on our shoulder, sin won't happen. We won't even want sin to happen. Because our Lord repels evil. Not us. We soak it up without even realizing it. And so, yes, if we are in the state of grace and if we foster our Lord's living presence in us, then we don't have to worry about all the bad things that might happen.
But in the same way that we're vigilant and we know that I could fall, the same way that David in his psalms brings to mind his past sins, not to ridicule himself, but to remind himself to be humble and to cling to God's grace, so too we can be confident as long as we're cautious. Because Christ is our safeguard. There are a few practical things that are worth factoring into. Mindful of the fact that these aren't sufficient. It's the presence of Christ. But the presence of Christ demands that we do get our house in order. But, but nice little practices don't mean that Christ is present among us. So following on extending the blessing that came from last night's Mass to your home with the blessed chalk, a house blessing by a priest is not a bad idea. An image of our Lord in your home is a very good idea, especially when it's a place of honor, a place where the family gathers to pray. Speaking of prayer, prayer needs to be part of your home. Individually, we need to make an examination of conscience at the end of the day and not let sin accumulate. Make an act of contrition. And as much as we ought to be in constant conversation with God, aware of His presence while we do other things, we need to set aside time where all we do is pray. A rosary is a good start. If your children are a little older as you try to implement this practice, I sympathize with you. I reeled at the prospect of sitting with my parents as an eighth grader, listening to their voices at the dinner table, praying the rosary every Sunday evening. We made a compromise. We would each pray a decade of the rosary on our own. And then we knew that we were all praying collectively a rosary. I'm not sure that really worked, but that's how we started. Eventually... And then we're happy to pray the rosary together. If the rosary is already part of the regimen, the divine office is the next step. Night prayer. Perhaps evening prayer after dinner. Maybe morning prayer for those who are up early. Let alone coming to Mass on occasions in addition to Sunday. Coming to adoration Wednesday evening. Or spending some time on first Fridays or first Saturdays in front of our Lord. In addition to prayer, we need to take practical steps and realize that prayer won't undo things that are still happening, that are bad and deliberate. We need to remove from our home all pornography, anything that is overtly wicked. All those Ouija boards that were given away for Christmas, you can throw them away. And as much as so many of the things we enjoy use batteries or USB ports to stay charged, it's not just for the sake of our education, but for the sake of our soul, that we should probably spend more time reading books and make sure that we're literate because Christ is the Word incarnate. We need to make sure that we spend time and are able to read the Word of God and understand it. 
and capable of focusing our attention for more than a few minutes at a time. Our theological development, our prayer life depends on it. Our homes need to be places of sobriety. And at that same time, teenagers need to learn how to drink before they go away from home. In a German household, that was one thing that was a constant. Any family gathering. So that by the time I went to college, it was no big deal. And the swill that was being served at parties was not interesting. Our homes ought to be places where guests feel loved. And they can experience our generosity. But at the same time, those who live in the home need to be frugal enough that if poverty ever visits us, we won't lose our faith. And one last point. Our lives need to be suitably dangerous enough That we don't go looking for evil, for excitement. We can be certain, if we are temples of the Holy Spirit, if if our Lord and Savior dwells within us, we will be visited by evil. It will happen. If our Lord is the focus and center of our lives, as much as He is the focus and center of this church then we really have nothing to worry about. And so a good prayer for the beginning of the year isn't, Lord, keep suffering far from me. That's impossible. If we desire to grow in holiness, suffering will visit us. So instead, we should pray, Lord, help me to suffer well. Help me to suffer such that I grow closer to you as I suffer. Help me to suffer with such grace and peace that people don't even know that I'm suffering. And make my joy and my love so strong that not only in our church... But also in my home and in my heart, you will always be praised and worshipped and loved and adored. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.